Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast, where we go after the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. We are staying right in the tactical pillar uh, today, continuing on from where we left off last week in taxes. So last week, we um, started to go after this big animal of taxes and how to how to increase uh, increase your your knowledge on taxes and therefore your effectiveness in how you can manage your tax uh, tax exposure. Um, so we are going to continue that even further here today. Um, like we said before, each each episode here is going to get pro- progressively more complicated. I'm planning on maybe doing one more after this. Uh, if you listened to the one last week, uh, we got into a lot of details behind how to um, or just how taxes have evolved um, in the United States here over the last hundred years. Um, into a little bit of understanding the, ra- the tax brackets, understanding what the difference between a blended tax rate is and an effective tax rate, uh, how all these things have apply. So we, we got into a lot of those de- details last week. Uh, this week, we are going to get, um, I'd say, considerably more complicated. So uh, buckle up, take some notes, uh, jump into the disclaimer here. Um, this show is intended for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as an investment advice um, you should consult with your own financial advisor or CPA lawyer uh, to help determine the best options for your particular circumstances. No statement made during the show shall constitute tax or legal advice. And our firm is not endorsed by the United States government or any governmental agency. And these opinions um, presented are obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but completeness and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. As I mentioned last week, um, the a little bit of background on, on our practice here with Storehouse Wealth is that we are not CPAs. We don't have any CPAs on staff. We're not lawyers. But the taxes and legal issues tend to be one of the main things that investors come to us for. Now, we get a lot of investors who who are interested in the alternative assets and the access to some of the stuff that we, that we have. But mostly people, when they're coming to us, they are looking for help mainly around taxes. Um, and so we're going to dig into that. Uh, the, the important to understand like the compound impact of taxes if you were and again if, if i ever use numbers that are way off to your scenario I apologize for that so if you make six hundred thousand dollars a year and pay let's say roughly 200 or maybe a little bit more two hundred thousand in taxes um you say you live you have three hundred thousand dollars a year of living expenses and so you're putting away a hundred thousand dollars a year um toward whatever type of investment whether this is retirement assets or non-qualified assets um the impact of you know that hundred thousand growing at twelve percent a year, ten percent, eight percent, whatever type of rate you're getting, compared to if you were instead of um, paying two hundred thousand in taxes, let's say you knocked down your taxable income to fifty thousand instead, um, then at, at that point, excuse me, not your taxable income, but you knock down your actual taxes owed to fifty thousand dollars. Then from there, there's an extra hundred fifty grand that you're able to put away. So whether that's you. Sp- spend 50 of that and invest another 100. So now your investments went from 100 a year to 200 a year. Um, or you are able to put all that extra uh, tax savings to to work in investments, uh, which we're going to get into in a little bit here. 
you can easily see the compound effect of that. Do do that over five years and see, look at look at how much growth you have. Because now you have an extra hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year that is being invested. So you've got your contributions up, plus all of that has got compound growth on top of that. So doing that for a little bit here can make a massive, massive difference in your long-term net worth. So huge, uh, huge reason, you know, incentive to to focus on taxes and to study this and understand it so you can do it well. Um, should you have a CPA? So the the uh, I've got a got a good friend here who um, who Dan Nicholson who runs a uh, CPA firm called Nth Degree uh, out of Seattle, and um, he he often talks about how the, uh, the you know the standard W two employee or small business owner pays the most taxes of of anyone. They pay the highest tax rate, um, and the reality is that the large business owners and the largest investors pay very little in taxes. Um, we, we talked a little bit last time um, about that, so I want to want to qualify that. So, so they still pay a lot in taxes. You know, we, we said that uh, you know we gave some of the stats of of how much the top one percent and the top ten percent pay of the total taxes that are paid uh, into the government. I think the top, sorry, might have these stats wrong here, but maybe like the top ten percent of um, earners paid around seventy some percent of the total taxes paid into the um, into the treasury, but the effective tax rate being, you know, for putting this on a uh, relative scale of the 400 largest families, the 400 uh, top earning families was 8%. So their effective tax bracket was 8%. So therefore, um, while they're still paying plenty in taxes, um, an extreme amount of dollars in taxes, the the uh, comparative rate, the relative rate of that is, is significantly lower than most people. Um, so should you have a CPA? I mean, quality of the expertise makes a large difference in, in um the the overall amount that you pay versus the amount you retain, and so then I want to I want to spend a little time in how to select a CPA because this is a critical piece of this because you should be getting tax advice from someone else, not me. <laughs> so um, it, you're gonna if you if you are interviewing a CPA or trying to decide if your CPA is making the cut, um, you're going to you have to qualify. So I want to try to help you understand like what an interview might look like with them. Um, so you need to qualify and say like, listen, every every client is different. I get that. But do you have some go-to strategies that you like to use for business owners, for uh, real estate investors, for philanthropists? And so we'll get into a couple of these things. Um, one, you have to let them know how proactive you and your financial team uh, realistically are going to be. If you say, "Listen, I'm I am hands off. You do everything. Um, I don't like keeping books. I don't like, you know, I just want to be left to do my own thing and show up, and you tell me how much I own taxes." then you're going to get a different answer. Um, but if you are going to be active with this and um, and really lean into the the whole process here, if you let them know that, then you should be able to get a different answer like I referenced before. They they have to, liability-wise, they can't offer you the same type of strategies that that um, they could if you had a, a full team of professionals who are going to help you execute everything uh, to make sure that you're doing everything you know correctly by the book. So... If you let them know, or I guess if, if you're going to ask them stuff about what is their typical plan, and if they come back with, uh, you know, well, we'd like to use IRAs, we're going to make sure you max out your IRAs and and your ERISA plans. ERISA plans is like your employer's um, retirement plans. So this could be a 401k, a 403b, a 457, a SEP or a simple IRA. Um, and so we're going to say, you know, we 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 use those. Uh, um, and outside of like, if their tax planning strategies don't go much bigger than that, 
then there's a there's a good indicator that uh, they are not going to be the tax the 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 type of tax planning um, the sophistication that you're looking for. So you know, and those IRAs and and ERISA plans are absolutely a good thing, um, but depending on your age, you might not want to push out uh, access to everything until 59 and a half. Uh, that might not be the best plan for you. Um, so then, you know, at that point, you give them another chance with some additional context. Say, you know, hey, I'm a business owner. And then are they asking, do you pay your kids? Um, if you have an, uh, an S-Corp, are you using the Augusta loophole? Um, Augusta loophole, just for your reference, is the Augusta rule says that you're allowed to, um, you're allowed to rent out your house 14 days per year and while you claim it on your taxes, it doesn't count as taxable income for you. So you as an individual allowed to rent your house out 14 days per year, get paid for it, and not um, not have to claim that on your taxes. So or not, it doesn't count against your taxable income. You still need to you know claim it and, and make sure that you are making note of that. There's a special form for that. The Augusta loophole says, hey, I'm going to use, I'm going to have my business use um use my home business going around my home to help me uh, or so i can i can run my uh my board meetings there or you know other things like that so there are ways to do that um, so using the gusto rule are you you know are you maximizing the home office deduction um and mileage um also if you're a business owner with that you want to say are are they going to make sure that you're doing things correctly and not leaving yourself exposed to an audit um you know by writing off things you're not supposed to um Another way to qualify this meeting with that CPA is to say, "Hey, I'm 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 big into philanthropy," and um, if there what what would typically happen then is they're going to talk about bunching, and so the when the standard deduction uh, standardized deduction increased here a couple of years back, then the idea the strategy came out of if you do give to you know to your church every you know you get let's say you give um, fifteen thousand dollars to your church every year. If you do that, then instead of giving them $15,000 this year and $15,000 next year and staying underneath that standardized deduction, instead have one year where you take the standardized deduction and the next year you give $30,000 um, to the church or into a donor advised fund that then gives the money to the church um, spread out over two years. So that way you're able to um, take advantage of, of a higher deduction there. And that that's absolutely a good strategy. I, I certainly recommend that. But that's probably where a lot of uh, CPAs start and stop um, when it comes to the the philanthropic um, side of tax planning. So, further things that we'd be looking for is like the annual gift exclusion. Are you giving away seventeen thousand dollars per person? Um, if if your net worth is high enough and you're trying to move assets out of your state, um, are you giving appreciated assets instead of cash? And so this is a big one here. So a lot of people just give cash. But if you're sitting on um, appreciated assets, if you're sitting on stock in an account that you want to, if you want to give thirty thousand dollars to uh, to a charity, and, and you've got a stock that was worth ten thousand has now appreciated to thirty thousand, you can sell the thirty thousand dollars worth of stock and pay your capital gains on that, and they give the charity what's left over. The government got their all of their capital gains tax, or you can. Um, gift the stock to the charity. So you gift them that $30,000 of stock. The charity doesn't have to pay the taxes on that. They have, um, you know, th that's, they don't have to deal with that. So then you're able to get a $30,000 deduction. The charity is able to um, receive $30,000 of of the gift because they're going to sell that stock and, and keep all 30000 
and then the um, the government takes none of that. So that, that's just this is one of the ways that we, we mentioned here of how you partner with the IRS. Um, the IRS wants money to go to charities, charities that are doing good things. So that's why they give you this opportunity. So instead of you taking a lower deduction, the charity gets less money and the government takes their cut. You can just give the charity more. You take a larger deduction um, and the government takes none if you gift appreciated assets rather than cash. So that's something else you want to make sure of. Um, if you're, if you are, um, depending on the net, you know, as if we're talking about a higher net worth, or if you are planning an exit in a business, um, we should be looking at things. Are you using like a charitable pooled trust, a charitable remainder trust, uh, an enhanced income trust, a grant and retained trust? And there, there's some others in there as well. Uh, I'm not going to get into those details now, but we'll, we'll have a, we'll have a lawyer come on. Um, that way they can explain those in more detail and, and I shouldn't be the one to, uh, be explaining that too much so we'll, we'll have a lawyer come on and go over those topics but that's something else like we want to make sure is if you are philanthropically inclined and you're getting ready to sell a business um your cpa needs to be a high level cpa i've talked to too many clients and friends who have come to me the year after they sold their business and they paid you know close to 40 percent of the of the sale from that business went to taxes and that just doesn't need to be um i referenced before the uh, Tom Wheelwright, Tom Wheelwright, this CPA, um, and how he talks about, you know, all, all income is taxable, except the 7,000 pages of the tax code are, are you know, showing you how you can uh, reduce or avoid taxes. And so the idea is to partner with the IRS. And so want to go over some ways that you can partner with the IRS. Um, the first one, the easy one is retirement accounts. So most of you are probably very well aware of these, but we'll, we'll hit these at a high level here. Uh, it's an easy way to make a reduction in your taxable income. So you can either invest uh, typically in a Roth account or in traditional. And so if they don't specify, that's n- typically going to be traditional. Um, if someone just is referring to an IRA, that's typically traditional unless it's specified as Roth. The difference between that is traditional is tax deferred, meaning um, I invested, you know, I, I made a $5,000 contribution to my traditional IRA and therefore $5,000 came off of my taxable income for this year. But all of that money, that 5,000 and all the growth that it has will eventually be taxable when I when I have to take it out or when I choose to take it out. Um, you have to take it out once you hit uh, the age when they uh, RMDs begin to apply. The uh, Roth account is a way that you pay the taxes now. So you make a $5,000 investment. You still pay taxes on that $5,000 this year. That's still stays as your taxable income just as it as it was um, but then that five thousand and all the growth that it receives is then tax-free so um, we have some investments that we've used that are expecting a very high multiple and so we have had clients then put those into a roth ira instead um, and, and through a self-directed ira one of our partners there that um, that we use so like midland or millennium these are companies who allow you to do self-directed iras so you can actually choose private investments or even real estate that you want to uh, invest in through your IRA. And if you're expecting one to have a significant growth, you could put that into a Roth IRA and then all of the growth that that received would then be tax-free. So that's certainly an option here. Uh, The IRAs, the limit this year for 2023 is $6,500 per person. That's what you can contribute this year. Uh, $7,500 if you are over the age of 50. There's an income limit with this. Uh, for married filing jointly, if you make over two hundred eighteen thousand dollars, you begin to um, 
not be able to contribute as much into your IRA. And I think at $228,000, I believe, is um, where that's actually maxed out, where you're not allowed to contribute to your um, IRA for a tax deduction. So what we do then is we switch to a backdoor Roth IRA. A backdoor Roth IRA um, says, I can't, if I'm, you know, let's say I'm 50 years old, I'm going to make, I want to make $7,500 contribution to my IRA, um, to my, my wife and I, we're going to do that. The, um, I can't take, make those $7,500 contributions and there, therefore take $15,000 off of my, off of our taxable income for the year. So instead I make the $7,500 into a non-deductible IRA. And then right after that's done, I convert it to a Roth IRA. This is called the backdoor Roth conversion. Um, anyone is eligible to do this. It would just, you know, work with whatever firm, whatever custodians. So if you have, um, if you have your account at Vanguard, you know, you can work with Vanguard to have them help you with that. If you have your account with your, uh, your financial advisor at Edward Jones or anywhere else you have that, you you know, they can help you execute this backdoor Roth IRA. You have the, um, ERISA plans like that I referenced earlier, ERISA plans, um, the most common one being the 401k. 401k this year, you're allowed to contribute uh, $22,500 if you're under 50 and $30,000 per year if you are over 50. That can be either traditional or Roth. Um, so that can either come off your taxable income or move into that tax-free bucket from here on out. Uh, has nothing to do with how much you make. So you can make those contributions there. Um, the other thing that most people aren't aware of is that there's actually, you're allowed, you're with employer contributions included in that, you're allowed to put up to $66,000 per year into that account. So therefore, um, if you are getting a bonus from your employer, um, they could put that into your 401k. And therefore, when you contributed 22500 $22, they could bump that up to get you up to $66,000 into that um, account. And all of the employer contributions or matches into this will always be tax deferred. So you will owe taxes on that. So inside of your 401k statement, you'll likely see a tax deferred bucket in a Roth bucket. There are other accounts that are used typically for small business owners. Uh, the two most common being a simple IRA. A simple IRA allows you to put up to $15,500 into that account as a contribution. Uh, I believe that is only tax deferred. Uh, that tax deferred is the only um, one that you can choose. I don't think you can choose a Roth option inside the simple IRA. Um, and then a SEP IRA. So a SEP IRA allows you to put up to $66,000 into this. Um, there are some catches with that, though. You have to, it has to be, um, it can be no more than 25% of your total compensation. Um, and then you have to, uh, if you are the business owner, you have to match you know, whatever portion of your salary you're putting in, you have to match that for all of your other employees as well. Not the same dollar amount, but the same percentage of your, of your salary. Um, does not apply to passive income or S-Corp distributions uh, on that 25% of total comp. So if you're an S-Corp, like we talked about last week, and you are um, you have taking a lower salary and a higher distribution amount, the amount that you can contribute is 25% of the salary, not the distributions. So important to note there. Sorry, so those are, in, in a nutshell, retirement accounts. The retirement account will allow you to invest in just about anything you ever could inside a, a different investment account. Um, so anyways, that's, that's one way you partner with the IRS. You partner with the IRS by uh, not having to rely on the government to sustain you during your retirement. So that's certainly part of this. Uh, we reference energy. Um, so inside, particularly inside oil and gas deals, 
you can, um, not all oil and gas deals where uh, we just finished raising capital for an oil and gas deal that we bought overriding royalty interest on a um, on some some leases. And those deals do not create any depreciation. So we are not getting the tax benefits there. Um, but if you choose to invest in an oil well, uh, those oil wells can depreciate out uh, at least 100% and sometimes even up to 200% uh, depreciation on those. So these are typically done inside a, a group or like a limited partnership investment. And so inside those, you could actually wind up a $100,000 investment could create $200,000 of depreciation to come off of your active income. So again, that, that $600,000 of active income, you partnered with the government here and you made a $100,000 investment. What well, that $100,000 investment could lower your taxable income for the year down to 400000 You need to work with the CPA on this because see, there's recapture and there's other there's other issues that come along with this you need to be aware of. But, but especially when someone's having an exit or having a, a high um, income year, then these strategies become very, very relevant. Um, but even if someone's just a high earner and they're looking to to use some of these pieces to, again, that compound impact of taxes, they're looking to uh, improve the amount of uh, money that they retain instead of paying in taxes, then, then oil oil and gas are, are great opportunities there. It's it's not that complicated from the standpoint of like what we're gonna, about to get into inside real estate here coming up next. Okay, so on to real estate. Um, more specifically housing, but but real estate in general, um, this is one of the the areas that is the best opportunity inside the tax code to uh, to partner with the IRS and and really improve your tax efficiency. Um, real estate is a is one of those ways that is a great way to create a lot of wealth long term. It's not a way to get rich quick by any means that um, it can be done, but most of the people who do that, um, it's not too far off from gambling. So, in a in a nutshell. The real estate play should be something that is part of your long-term financial plan. Um, it shouldn't just be a, a one-off thing. But if you're choosing to use real estate, real estate is one of the best ways to uh, to partner with the IRS and, and create that long-term wealth. So I want to back that up a little bit here. The, the biggest thing is depreciation. Um, we're going we're gonna to go into a lot more detail down at the end of this. So so we've got depreciation. Um, real estate income is treated as, as passive income most of the time. And so the income that you have inside that, you know, what, what a rental property generates for you. Um, so that's that's going to be treated as passive, which means you're not you don't have to pay FICA or self-employment taxes. Uh, and that's a big deal. The 1031 exchange. So 1031 exchange is a way that you can take a property. You bought this property at $300,000 and it has now, well, <laughs> let's pretend that you live in California, that $300,000 property is now worth $1.2 million. Uh, you go to sell it. If you if you sell that, then you would owe taxes on the nine hundred thousand dollars of difference between what you sold it for and what your cost basis is. Um, important to note that your cost basis probably doesn't stay the same throughout the whole ownership of that process. Um, but for this example, we'll just use that. So you could pay the the um, taxes on the nine hundred grand of capital gains, or you could choose to move that money, um, that one point two million that you took from that sale and move that into another real estate investment. And if you do that, then you're able to just kick the tax can down the road further. And um, in a lot of cases in life, kicking the can down the road is not the best plan. Inside real estate, real estate is set up that you can choose to stay in real estate for life. Um, it can be pretty easy because you can also do this passively and and never pay taxes, which leads to the next piece, which is a step up in basis. 
step up in basis means. And this is similar to stock, um, where if you bought a stock, you know, you bought your, you know, you bought Apple when Apple was first starting. And then whenever you pass away, you have held Apple this whole time and you sell it, or excuse me, um, you hand that down to your kids upon your death, then they get a new step up in basis. So all the growth that you've had in that Apple stock along the way just gets wiped out. It's just, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Your kids have the, you know, the, the, the cost of that stock at the, um, at the day of your death is their new basis. And so therefore those taxes don't have to be paid. The same thing happens in real estate. <clears throat> Except in real estate, you could have made multiple transactions along the way, transitioning from one house, you know, single family residential to a duplex into a quadplex into a, you know, into a tenplex. And then before you know it, like you're now part of a, a real estate syndication that owns, um, you know, some big industrial complex. And you can have migrated your money through that and never paid taxes along the way um, through the 1031 exchange. So inside 1031 exchange, <clears throat> some key things are. When you're going to sell a property, you have 45 days from the day that you uh, close on your property to declare up to three properties that you were going to potentially use as the 1031 um, that you're going to acquire. You then have 180 days from the, again, not from not from that 45 days, 180 days from back from the date of closing to actually execute the closing of one or two, one, two or three of those properties. Um, you have to use a qualified intermediary which means you never actually take possession of the funds. So on the closing of your property, those funds don't come to you. You don't touch the check. The check goes straight to the qualified intermediary and they are held held with them until you go to close on your next property. So that's how a little bit how a 1031 works. It's a very, very powerful opportunity. You need to make sure that it, in, in our example here, we you know, 1.2, we have to factor in debt and some other pieces, but basically the 1.2 million, we're going to make sure that we, deploy at least 1.2 million into those 10, 1031 exchanges to make sure that everything's done properly there. Um, certainly, that's a key thing to please don't do on your own. Please, unless you're very qualified and experienced with that, uh, make sure that you are working with someone else who who has a lot of experience with this because there's a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of things that need to be done right. Otherwise, you can you can uh, screw that one up and, and wind up owing a lot in taxes still. Another thing inside real estate, you have historical tax credits. Historical tax credits are a uh, way that, especially inside uh, urban downtown, you know, downtown urban areas where you have that have been a little bit more run down, the not always, but but most of the time they are, and so the government will provide incentives to have people come in and rehab these buildings. So, our our firm and with some of the people that we partner with have have you know we 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 look for those opportunities. So they they take a long time to execute. They might take uh, 18 to 24 months to actually execute one of these deals before you actually begin the construction process uh, with all of the different stuff that you need to apply for from the government standpoint. Uh, but when you do, you're able to turn a small investment into a, um, into a, a lot of value because of these historical tax credits and what they do for your real estate. So that's certainly something to to look into. But again, driving back to the point, that's that's one way that you partner with the IRS. The, the tax code is meant to to incentivize you. It's not meant to uh, figure out how they can trap you. Uh, another one inside real estate here is opportunity zones. So um, opportunity zones are a way that, uh, again, back to these kind of depleted downtown areas where the government wants to, um, you know, especially on local level, they're trying to drive up the investment back into these older you know, dilapidated buildings 
And so they have created opportunity zone funds. And what you can do is you can choose to invest in these uh, warehouse district type situation that's trying to convert them into new condos or, or new commercial buildings or commercial um, business opportunities. And so what happens to an opportunity zone is they're attracted to people who have a substantial capital gain that they are trying to um, reduce. So let's say someone owned a, um, we'll go back to that Apple example. You've owned Apple stock for a long time. And now because of what's happened inside Apple, you don't want to hold that anymore. You can sell your Apple stock um, and work with an opportunity zone to actually put your investment into an opportunity zone. And so this would now be a real estate deal, a real estate syndication that you are part of. And at that point, if you hold your investment for five years with within that um, opportunity zone fund where they're just doing somewhat of a fairly normal construction rehabilitation and then trying to um, bring in rent uh, just like any other real rental property would the at five years you get up to it you can get a 10 percent deduction of the capital gains on your um on the original investment the one that you you know migrated into or migrated from if you hold it for seven years that goes up to 15 percent. so 15 percent of your capital gains are are now uh, eliminated the uh, other piece of this is if you hold that investment for 10 years then all of the gains that you've got on the new uh, real estate investment that you've been in now for 10 years are also wiped completely clean. So that's where <clears throat> that's where uh, government has just created more incentive plans to try to help drive money into real estate. Okay, last one here. Uh, this is a this is a big one. So we're going to hit on this a little bit now to to lay the foundation, and then next week we're going to get into some of the, the strategies behind this. Um, but this is back to depreciation. So depreciation. If you're a business owner, you you know, you know, you depreciate out your vehicles, you depreciate out uh, any equipment that you have in your office. But inside real estate, you can you, you depreciate this as well. If you're rent, if you have owned any rental property, you know that uh, residential properties depreciate on a 27 and a half year schedule, and commercial real estate depreciates on a 39 year schedule. What that means is, if you bought a five million dollar building and you do nothing, um, you you and your CPA execute no type of strategy along with that, then that $5 million building, uh, not including the land because the land doesn't depreciate. So we're just going to pretend that maybe it's a $6 million purchase and a million dollars of that went to land and the building itself was worth $5 million. So in that case, then the $5 million um, of, of real estate would get depreciated out over 39 years, just on a straight line depreciation. So one thirty-ninth of that $5 million every year comes off of your um, <clears throat> or is shown as a loss. The idea behind that is that is you're able to offset the gains um, that you would have, the passive gains from the the rent that you um, that you earn, and so that's a it's a huge benefit inside real estate. You're able to earn income and um, not pay taxes on it because the depreciation is basically offsetting the taxes. You need to understand again with this. Please work with your CPA because there is there's a recapture side of this. If you were to sell the real estate. Um, if you had depreciated it out all the way and you were to sell the real estate, not do a 1031 exchange, well, then you'd be left with a significant tax bill at the end of this. You need to be prepared for how that works. And all these things are, are very interwoven together, um, which is why, again, I suggested at the beginning, you have a, a highly sophisticated CPA. But uh, inside real estate, you, have, you can also do uh, what's called accelerated depreciation. Accelerated depreciation is where you would take um, every component of every building component of that 
uh, whole construction process. So the carpet, the carpet is going to be on a five-year depreciation schedule. Um, you've got a seven-year depreciation schedule. You have a 15-year depreciation schedule. And so all the building components are broken down into which depreciation schedule they fit in, whether it's the five, seven, 15, or either 27 and a half or 39 year, depending on what type of building it is. And so every component falls into one of those four um, categories of depreciation. And then um, everything that's in the five, seven, and 15 year, and 15 year might be like landscaping or parking lots. Um, so all of the, the value is tied to that particular um, category, that particular line item inside the building is then put on that schedule. And so accelerated depreciation would say, if, if in this case we have um, on about $5 million, let's say we have a uh, million dollars of the building is falls in the five-year depreciation schedule. Well, then we can choose to have that million dollars broken out and taken as acceler- accelerate that depreciation over the next five years. So basically taking $200,000 per year of that, we could, we could off, um, use that to increase the amount of depreciation we take up front. Same with the seven, same with the fifteen year, um, or there's this other option. So that 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 works in and of itself. That's called accelerated depreciation. We take all of these items. They they do the cost segregation study. There are firms that will go out and do that for you, and then they whatever category they assign them to and whatever dollar amount they assign them to, that is how you're able to associate how much you're able to write off per year. Bonus depreciation is uh, something that's been in play here for. Uh, for a while. And that is where you can take every item that falls in the um, accelerated depreciation category. So these five, seven, and 15 year items, then you can take those all as a write-off in year one. And so in this example here, let's say that we had, there's often very little that falls in the seven-year schedule, but let's say we had another 500,000 that fell in the 15-year schedule. Then, so now $1.5 million of our $5 million property um, is el- eligible for accelerated depreciation. We choose to bonus depreciate that, which means we take all 1.5 million of that. We, we choose to take that full depreciation in the first year that we put the building into service. And so what happens then is um, you can choose to have that be uh, come against your active income or your passive income. So naturally, it, it starts out as passive income, so it could be a passive loss. So if you had a if you had a large passive gain, you could choose to take all of that depreciation up front to offset um, offset that gain with a big passive loss. Or if you don't use that full passive loss this year, it will just carry forward into subsequent years. If you have real estate professional status, which is going to be something that, uh, that I reference that we're going to dig deep into on the next episode, then that is how you can use that as you can take what would be a passive loss, that 1.5 million of a passive loss, and turn that into an active loss. So that will then offset your active income. So instead of it offsetting um, passive gains that you may have had at you know 15 or 20% tax, you're able to use this to offset active gains. And so that would be able to offset you know that 37% tax. Uh, interesting to note, it does not offset, uh, you can't use that to depreciate out state tax. So in my case here in Illinois, I'd still owe 5% to the state, but I wouldn't owe the 37% to the federal government. And so again, this is how you partner with the IRS. They have created these incentives to help you um, to help you do what they want you to do and therefore get a, get a perk in return. And so we use accelerated depreciation. Um, and we use bonus depreciation. We use that. And then we try to, we lump that together to try to create an active loss um, to, which is how we then, tried to um, 
basically manufacture our effective tax rate down to the number that we that we so choose. I do believe in paying taxes. I am protected by the military. I am protected by the police and fire department. I drive on the roads. I drink the water. I I should pay taxes. I just don't necessarily agree with the way that a lot of the tax money is being used, and therefore, that's why I don't want to pay the the same amount as the tax bracket suggests I should. So therefore, I play by the rules that the IRS has set forth and partner with them to lower my taxable income down to uh, an amount that that I'm more comfortable with, down to an effective tax bracket that I that I like. So um, th- that's what that's what I'm using inside here with uh, with with real estate and oil and gas opportunities. Um, one one thing to note on the bonus depreciation is that is currently sunsetting. So it had been so you would get that full. All of that money that's that was accelerated depreciation in this example was 1.5 million. You would get all of that up front, um, but now beginning in 2023 is the first year of the sunsetting where it dropped down to 80 percent. So we would get 80 percent of that 1.5 million the following year, 60, 40, 20, and so on um, until bonus depreciation sunsets out. Now that is going through Congress right now um, to hopefully be put in place where that would um, where that would stay back to 100% and make that a permanent part of the tax code instead of just a, a short-term um, incentive that they put in place. So more, more to come on that, obviously. Um, but anyways, hope, hopefully we threw a lot at you there. I know we threw a lot at you there. Hopefully you're able to retain that. That's, that's valuable to you. Um, definitely need to dig into this and understand more about taxes because there's the opportunities there for you to, to play along with the IRS, reduce your taxable income, keep more of it, Again, that compound impact of taxes, if you're able to turn, you know, the way that I reduce my taxable income is by making right the right investment. So we can invest in opportunity A, which gives me no tax benefit, or opportunity B. If they're, you know, don't you don't let the tax tail wag the dog. So if the investment is not a good investment, then it doesn't make sense. But if you were comparing apples to apples and you know, equivalent investments and one of them came with these big tax benefits, then that's that's where we're looking at this. So um, that's how we're playing. The, I'm playing this into my situation. Um, you know, encourage you to look into that for yourself and see if that's a good fit for you. And we will see you next week as we go even deeper into some more complicated uh, tax strategies, especially into this real estate professional status. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.